Last week we began opening the book of Proverbs together, and we wrestled with the nature of the book. The first nine chapters don't really give us many Proverbs of the book of Proverbs, and yet we're confronted with a father's loving instruction of his son in these first nine chapters. And as we think about that, we we remembered King Solomon, the organizer and the initiator of this whole collection, and we remember how he asked God for wisdom and God granted wisdom to him. And we talked a little bit about how we shouldn't view that as though God suddenly zapped Solomon and he became a radically different person in the moment. But instead, he had a resource behind him that he could draw from that would be the, maybe the building blocks for the wisdom that God would supply to him. Those building blocks are the scriptures themselves that Solomon had. And so as we carry on with Solomon's instruction to his own son, I thought we would consider very briefly this morning Solomon's father's wisdom, the wisdom of Solomon's father, King David. Uh, We're going to see a couple of places in these first nine chapters where Solomon is actually relaying to us something that he learned from his father, David, and some of that has come to us in scripture as well. And we know Solomon for writing Proverbs, and we know David mainly from writing Psalms. But many of the Psalms that David wrote are considered and to be and classified as wisdom Psalms. And in fact, the first Psalm that opens the collection of the book of Psalms is such a wisdom Psalm. So I thought we'd glance there for just a moment because we're going to see some connections with the passage that we're looking at in Proverbs this morning. So I invite you to turn over to Psalm 1. It will be familiar to many of you. It's commonly memorized among Christians. It's a very helpful psalm to sketch out the two ways of living in this world. So let's consider David's words in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we're introduced to this blessed man, this man who is to be congratulated he is to be congratulated because he's found the right way to live life. He's received grace from the Lord to get on that righteous path. And in the psalmist, David describes him first by what he doesn't do. He doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. That is, he doesn't take his steps following the advice of wicked people. He doesn't follow the counsel of the wicked in the way that they would tell him to go. His thinking is not shaped by the wicked. He doesn't stand on the road of sinners. He doesn't take his stand and position himself on the place characterized by sin. He doesn't find his place there. And finally, he doesn't sit down. He doesn't settle in in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't take the position of one who hears God's word, God's truth, God's wisdom, and scoffs and mocks. He doesn't settle down into a position of teaching that would guide other people to look down, to belittle God's word and God's wisdom. But instead, as verse 2 describes to us, his delight, his joy, 
His excitement is in the law of Yahweh. Now, the word that David uses here is the word Torah. It's a Hebrew word that you might have heard before. Torah. It's usually used to describe the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The books of Moses. The Torah of Moses. Unfortunately, we're stuck with the English word law to give us what this word means. But it is not legal material. It's not legislation. I mean, even think about the contents of the book of Genesis. None of it is law, legislation, legal material. In fact, if you think of Genesis through Deuteronomy, you don't get any legislation until Exodus chapter 20. You've got to go all, through, all the way through 50 chapters of Genesis and 19 chapters of Exodus before you get law. And so we need to think about this word a little bit differently than legalistically or even in the form of legislation. Does it contain legislation? Yep, sure does. But the word means instruction. It's, the, it's related to the normal word for to teach. That's all it is. And so Genesis through Deuteronomy teaches us, instructs us about life in this world, mainly through telling a story, by sketching out a narrative, by telling us history. Yeah, there's some legislation and some legal material. The legal code of the Mosaic law is in there, but that's not primarily what it is. And what we're going to see as we go into the book of Proverbs is that the word Torah is going to show up. It's going to show up in our passage this morning. It's going to show up several times. And we're going to see that there's a connection between the book of Proverbs and that Torah of Scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, so that the wisdom that God is presenting through Solomon in the book of Proverbs is largely rooted and shaped by the instruction of Scripture. And we're going to constantly be going back there because that is our source. That is our fountain of wisdom ultimately. And so the call for us as we seek to be wise people in this world, as we seek to follow the way of wisdom, we should follow the wisdom of Solomon's father here who recognized there is a joy and a delight to be had in studying and learning from the instruction, the Torah of Scripture. And that's what we're seeking to do as we open the book of Proverbs. So I invite you to turn over to Proverbs chapter 1 now. And we'll be looking at Proverbs 1, verses 8 to 19. We looked at the prologue to the book of Proverbs last week, verses 1 to 7, where we're given several purposes of the book of Proverbs, the things that this book is designed to accomplish in your life as you read it and study it. And the theme of the whole book was given to us in verse 7. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And that concept of the fear of the Lord needs to shape everything we read in the book of Proverbs. That right relationship with God that is shaped by a certain kind of excitement, a certain kind of thrill. Yes, a certain kind of fear, but a good fear. And as we enter into that and embrace that as the core um, outline of our relationship with the Lord, then we might find our way taking the right steps down the right path toward a wise and godly life, a life that pleases the Lord. So I'd like to read our first teaching block here. We enter into verses 8 to 19 and we get our first lesson from a father to his son. And they're sketched like that. They're shaped like that. A lesson from the father to his son. But let's not imagine here that either we're not hearing from both parents, because we are, we're going to see that very clearly in this passage. But also, this is not just for men or boys. It's not just for sons. It's also for daughters. God's wisdom applies to all of us. So let's read verses 8 to 19, and then we'll walk our way through it. 
Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, like Shaol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So we have very much a warning message this morning. This lesson is a warning from the father to his son about the way of sinners. The way of sinners. So what we have here in these first couple of verses, in verses 8 and 9, is an introduction to uh, to get our attention. And we're seeing there the grace of parental instruction. So as he sets the stage for this lesson, we're seeing the grace of parental instruction. And the key word here is listen. Listen to your parents. Hear what they have to say. But of course, when you see that word in the Bible, you shouldn't think he's just talking about what your ears do. He's not talking about make sure that the sounds that your father is spitting out of his mouth, make sure they land on your eardrums so that you actually process them correctly. That's not what he means. He means listen and obey. He means heed, heed, respond appropriately to what your father is teaching you. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. And that word for instruction is the same word we see in the previous verse in verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And I mentioned last week how the Hebrew word there shades over into what we think of as discipline. Discipline. And like in English, the word discipline has a positive connotation and a negative connotation. And usually when we use it by itself, we think of the negative side mostly. Corrective discipline. And we're going to see that that's generally what Proverbs means too. However, discipline, of course, involves training. The positive side is true as well. And it's about training someone, usually in a way that is painful and difficult, even when you're talking about positive instruction. But here, the emphasis probably lands on the discipline side, the corrective side. That is, you're veering off the path, and your father addresses you with corrective discipline. Now, he's not speaking here of what we do find in the book of Proverbs about corporal punishment, the idea of a physical discipline with a rod, because here it is to listen to the discipline of your father. Before it ever gets to the point where we've got to use the rod, there should be a verbal address here. And so it is that when your father seeks to correct you, When your father seeks to show you that you're doing the wrong thing, you're thinking the wrong thing, you're going down the wrong path, the right response for any son and any daughter is to say, oh, you're right, I need to move, I need to shift, I need to listen and heed and get back over to where I belong. Now this is, again, talking first and foremost about a parent's instruction and discipline of a child, but it goes beyond that. This is 
in the book of Proverbs, in the Bible, for you as a grown-up. And so it's also talking about God's discipline of you. God, as your father, disciplining you. And so the idea is very much so that you may veer along the path and heading toward the wrong path when God brings discipline into your life to seek to correct you. The only right response is to correct course, is to get back on the path, get back moving in the right direction. Here, my son, your father's discipline, his instruction. And forsake not your mother's teaching. Now, this is shocking to an original reader of this text. In the ancient world, typically they didn't talk much about the mother's role in uh, instructing and parenting. But the Bible does. The Bible is wondrously different than the surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures where they elevate the role of the mother in the home, where they give dignity and strength to the woman in the home. And she has a high and equal responsibility with the father in the home to instruct her children. The Bible gives us that. Other cultures don't, but the Scriptures do. Don't abandon your mother's teaching. This is elevated to the highest level because the word for teaching here is the word Torah. Forsake not. Don't abandon. Don't forsake. Don't turn away from your mother's instruction. And so what's being implied here is that the mother had a role to play in bringing instruction to her children. And that instruction was to be rooted in the Torah, the Scriptures. The mother is being shown to have a responsibility to teach the Scriptures to her children. And that is something we need to embrace in our own families. It's not just the mother's role. It's both parents' responsibility, always and everywhere in the Bible. You should understand that. It's not one parent's job. It's both parents' responsibility. I have to step out of here and say a a word that I wish I didn't have to say, but I do, so I'm going to. This is a picture of homeschooling your children. But you need to understand that in the ancient world, they didn't have such a thing as public school. That wasn't a, a reality. That wasn't even an idea. And so everybody had to deal with teaching their own children at home in one form or another. However, with that, particularly in Israel, from what we know, is that oftentimes, oftentimes, parents paid or enlisted the aid of others to teach their children. The father and the mother are given the responsibility, but that does not mean that you have to discharge that responsibility yourself. It is legitimate and appropriate for a Christian, so let me get to the point here, it is legitimate and appropriate for a Christian to engage other people to teach your children. Okay? It is appropriate to do that, but you, as parents, bear the responsibility to ensure that if if somebody else is actually going to do the teaching of your children, you need to know what's going on. You need to be invested and involved so that you're shaping your child as they grow and not whoever else might be teaching them. But there is an appropriate place. We need to pull back from our pendulum swinging in our culture where we are attacking each other as Christians and fighting against people's choices to educate their children differently than you have chosen to. This text reminds us that that responsibility can be broadened out. And so in their world, one of the primary responsibilities of slaves was to teach the family's children, and that includes in the context of Israel. Slaves were offered employed to teach their children because either the mother and the father couldn't because of whatever reasons, or because it was just advantageous because their households were so large. 
they utilized slaves. Or, especially as they got older, and I'm talking 9, 10, 11, and on up, before they entered adulthood, it would often be the case that they would farm out their children to someone who would tutor them in a skill or a trade to prepare them for whatever job they might be doing, particularly if it was going to be different than the father's. So, the whole educational system that's presented to us, that's reflected, it's not really given to us. The Bible doesn't teach us, this is the educational system you should have. The Bible doesn't do that for us. But it does reflect an educational system. And it's much more broad than simply fathers and mothers sitting down and doing all of the instruction themselves. That was common, it happened, and it was good. In either case, fathers and mothers... Christian parents, you need to take responsibility for the education of your children. But that doesn't have to look the same in every household. And so here, the mother's teaching in particular is elevated. And we need to make sure that we see that here in the book of Proverbs. We will see it again and again. The mother's role is elevated in the instruction of her children. But also notice this is not about children. This is actually about someone who's entering adulthood. And so the... Father and mother's instruction and discipline and training goes on up beyond the teenage years. Um, The influence that a father and mother is supposed to have in their children's life toward the things of the Lord is supposed to continue and press on and develop. So that's the basic uh, point here in verse 8. The encouragement to the child to be sure that you listen to the discipline of your father and the instruction of your mother. And it's not like the father's the only one who does the discipline and the mother's the only one who does the teaching. This is poetry. We're talking about the whole system here. Both parents are involved in both sides. Corrective discipline, instructive discipline, and instruction from the scriptures, from the Torah, the inspired Torah of the Bible. Both parents are involved and are responsible. The point here is that we don't want our children to be like the fool of verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and discipline or instruction. We don't want our children to be that way. Commentator John Kitchen comments, Both parents are God's agents on earth to point their children in the right direction and to train them through correction to stay on the path. That's the point. Verse 9 gives us a reason, a motivator. Why should they and why should we listen? Why should we heed Because the instruction, the discipline, and the Torah, and the instruction of our children are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. He uses a metaphor. He basically says they're a beautiful garland, a headdress, and a necklace. It's a metaphor, okay? You might notice the silhouette of the woman there with the flowery headdress and the the golden necklace around her neck. Um, I didn't put a man up there with a flowery headdress and a necklace around his neck for perhaps obvious reasons in the confusion of our culture. This is addressed to a son, and it is a metaphor, okay? But it applies to girls as well. But the point is this, graceful garland. The idea is that the garland, the crown, the wreath is made of grace. And he means God's grace. Okay, this is about God's grace here. So the instruction and the discipline that's being extended from the parents is to be a conduit of God's grace into their life. And so when a student, when a, when a son, when a daughter, when a child, when a person receives instruction and discipline and welcomes it and responds appropriately to them, God's grace comes to them and changes them, makes them pretty. Are you okay with that? <laughs> Sons, it makes you look good. 
God's grace is intended to change you so that you look good. That's the point. And God's grace flows through the instruction of parents. Now, it's assuming here that the instruction of parents is rooted in God's Word and God's wisdom. That's the assumption. So assuming that parents are instructing their children toward God's wisdom and God's ways, that is a channel of God's grace to them. And that grace will bring the kind of transformation that makes you look good. Not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. And that's what is most important. So this grace that's on display here is a, is a result of and an outworking. It comes through parental instruction for children as they grow. So the actual lesson then begins in verse 10. In 10, verses 10 through 18, we see the way of sinners, the way of sinners illustrated. So the father paints a picture here. He summarizes his lesson in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Very simple lesson. <laughs> if sinners entice you, don't go with them. Don't agree with them. Now notice he's labeled the people he's talking about sinners. So the father's got a vantage point on what that means and what that looks like. And that vantage point is shaped by the word of God. So sinners, these sinners, if they entice you. Now this is related to the word that we saw last week, simple, back in verse uh, four, the address of this book to the simple, to the naive, to the gullible. And we talked about how the word means open, and it's not necessarily a compliment to be open-minded in this context. It's to have your head open, ready to be filled, and the options on the table are, is it going to be filled by wisdom or it's going to be filled by folly? And so here, he's using the same word to say sinners are going to come and try to make you open your mind to them. Sinners are going to come and try to make you open your mind to them so that they can pour in what they've got to offer. And he's saying, if they do that, don't agree with them. Don't follow them. Don't go with them. Pretty simple advice. Now he paints a picture. He illustrates it. So in verses 11 to 14, we get the warning scenario. And notice the way he does this. He puts words in the mouths of the sinners. And if we just put ourselves in the sandals of the sinners for just a minute, we would know that they wouldn't say it like this. So we need to recognize that the way the father spins the sinner's enticement, the sinner's temptation, he's telling his son the truth about what they mean. He's not telling them the words they're actually going to use. because They're not going to say it this way. They're not going to expose themselves in this way. They're going to spin it real sweet-like. Or there's no enticement. There's no temptation if they don't spin it and cover it in a certain way to make it sound like it's something that you really want to do. The father is teaching the son discernment here, showing him how to see through and listen through the way they cover over their enticement with sugary language. And so he's telling them the truth about what they're, going to, what they're going to be presenting. Notice the way he says it, verse 11. If they say, come with us, literally that's the word walk with us. That'll be important later. Walk with us. Let us lie and wait for blood. They're not going to say it that way. <laughs> they're not. I was struck by this line here. The way the father sketches this out to the son. He's telling his son, sinners are going to come and entice you. They're going to try to draw you into their schemes. And what they're really doing is bringing you into something that's going to bring death and destruction to other people. And I was struck that this line, let us lie and wait for blood, could be a, uh, a tagline, a, a slogan almost, 
that fits really well in our world. But before we get to that, let's think about what he's painting a picture of here. This is simply and very clearly the idea of gang violence, being pulled into a gang. And in the ancient world, that was very common. And I wonder about how relevant that is to us living in rural western New York. I mean, you could go to Rochester, and I think there's some gang violence there. Certainly, when you go into bigger cities and urban areas, you see the threat of gang violence. And this is a, a talk you probably have to have with your children. Um, I know where I grew up in East Texas, we had gang violence. We had to be concerned about gangs in our schools. and We had to have those conversations to know what was going on and to be able to stay away from that kind of thing. But think about the pull, the draw of gangs. I mean, very often they draw in people who come, kids who come from broken families. They don't have a, a home that's cohesive. And the attraction is, we'll, we'll give you protection. We'll give you companionship. We'll give you loyalty. We'll stick up for you and provide protection for you. And, and the draw then is, now we're going to do some stuff. And there's going to be some profit to it, some personal profit also. But the bad stuff that they're going to do gets covered over by the comfort and the loyalty and the companionship that's offered to someone who lacks those kinds of things. And so I thought about, what is there a broader relevance to this besides just literal gang violence? That is probably what Solomon is concerned about in his world and his day. And I thought that, yes, there is a great concern of this kind of thing in our world and in our culture, and it's as big as our politics. It's as big as any kind of organization or group trying to get you to support their cause. I mean, from my vantage point, as I look at this, let us lie and wait for blood could be the truth, the exposure of, from my vantage point, the platform of the Democratic Party. Let us lie and wait for blood. Because think about it. The supporting of abortion, of the murder of unborn children, that's not what they're calling it. They're calling it health care for women. And we need to be able to see through that screen, that smoke screen, to be able to say, no, no, what's actually going on here? There's death on the other side of that. Or the, the mutilation of children... What are they saying that is? Well, it's affirming their identity. It's affirming what they want. That sounds so good. But we need to be able to see through that with God's wisdom to see there's death and destruction on the other side of that. And so this, this line, let us lie and wait for blood, anytime a group is trying to get you to support them. I mean, he's going to say in verse 14, he's going to say they're, gonna, they're calling you to throw in your lot among us. Cast your vote for us. Support us. Make sure that our agenda goes forward. And the father is preparing his son to say, no, 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 I see through that, and I'm not going to give in to that, and I'm not going to line up with that. The way that he spins this out in verses 11 to 14, again, is not the way they would put it. They wouldn't say, let us ambush the innocent man. No, they would say, that guy's got it coming to him. You know, you know, we deserve to go in there, and he doesn't deserve the wealth that he has, so let's go take it from him. I mean, these, these guys are going to present themselves as Robin Hood figures. We're robbing the rich to feed the poor. That's the way they're going to present it. But the father wants the son to know better, to see through that, to listen for the truth here. 
they're going to say something like, Let's, they're going to compare themselves in verse 12 to death. Like Shaul, let us swallow them alive. That is, they want the, they want to, we're going to be like the power of death, which covers and dominates everyone on the planet. We want that kind of power. They want to be like death. I'm going to swallow them alive. In the Old Testament, Shaol is the place of the dead. It's the place where the souls of dead people go. And it's pictured oftentimes as a monster that eats people. And these sinners are saying, we want to be like that. We want to be powerful and consuming and dominating in our destructive ways. But they promise loot in all of this. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder in verse 13. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. There won't be a leader among us. We'll all have an equal share. Share and share alike. Everybody gets a piece of the pot here. Everyone does. We're all equal in this endeavor. So he's, the sinners are bribing the son here with the promise of treasure. But what we see in the context of Proverbs and in the context of the father's instruction of the son, even in these first nine chapters, is there's one place to find treasure, and it's with God's wisdom. Flip over to chapter 8 real quick. Proverbs 8.18. 8, I don't think I put this on the screen, but Proverbs 8.18, 8, we're going to hear from Lady Wisdom. She becomes a character in the story, and Wisdom speaks for herself in Proverbs 8.18. 8, and she says, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. And so sinners are going to say, we got lots of ways to get wealth and treasure. But the scripture says there's one way to get wealth and treasure, true wealth, lasting wealth, lasting treasure, and it's through God's wisdom and no other way. And so the father is preparing the son for that day. In verse 15, he gives the wise counsel. He's painted up this nasty scenario. He's told his son the truth about it. And in verse 15, we get the wise counsel. Very simply, my son, do not walk in the way with them. They had, they had said, walk with us. Come with us. Walk with us. And the father says, don't walk with them. Don't walk on the road with them. Hold back your foot. Note the singular from their past. Saying, don't take one step in their direction. When they come calling with their siren song, don't take one step in that direction. Don't put one foot on that path. Because once you do, the pull will be too strong. Keep your foot off of their path. And then he explains why. He gives the reason in verses 16 to 18. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Now in verse 17, he does give us a proverb. So there are proverbs embedded in these longer teaching blocks in chapters 1 to 9. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. And there's discussion about what's the point of that image. I think the best way to think about it is if you lay out a net and the bird is watching you, the bird, who is a dumb animal, is smart enough to not get caught in the net. And he's contrasting the sinners that he's been describing for, with the bird. So he's saying, don't be, be as smart as a dumb bird, because these sinners who are already there are not. Uh, one writer puts it this way, the one who rushes headlong in greed, which we'll see in verse 19, greed is the issue here, the one who rushes headlong in greed proves he is less than a bird brain. And so, <laughs> that, that's the idea. The father wants the son to not see this way as attractive. He wants to see that this is dumb. This is not wise. This is foolish. Even birds, who are not noted for their brightness, are smart enough to stay out of a trap that's going to destroy them when they see it laid out. And so, 
He contrasts these men in verse 18. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They don't see that. They don't see, they said, they said, let us lie in wait for blood, other people's blood. But the father is telling the son the truth. They're actually lying in wait, scheming for their own blood. It's going to be self-destructive. They said an ambush. They said we're going to set an ambush for an innocent man without reason. Like he hasn't provoked us. We're just going to go after him. But they're actually setting an ambush for their own lives. Something we see throughout the book of Proverbs is that sin, folly, is self-destructive. It ends badly, always. And the challenge for the son and the challenge for you and me and the challenge for all of God's people throughout all of God's history has been the challenge of recognizing the reality that sometimes sinners prosper. The wicked don't seem to have that destructive end. And of course, that pushes us out to see that there is coming a final judgment day. And on that day, all wrongs will be righted. Everything, everything will be exposed to light. And all sin, all, every sin will have been punished completely and justly. That day is coming. Sometimes we see a glimpse of that in our lives because the ways of folly are indeed suicidal and self-destructive. But in this fallen, broken world, that doesn't always happen in our lifetime and in our perspective. Uh, Think of Psalm 73. The psalmist was complaining about this very reality that the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous seem to suffer. And the psalmist was upset about that. But he said his dilemma, his angst was solved when he went to the house of God. What did he find there? He found the word of God that taught him the true perspective, the big picture. And he says, I remembered and saw their end the end of the wicked. And that's what we have to keep in mind as we think about these things throughout the book of Proverbs. It's not formulaic. And it doesn't always happen in a timely fashion from our time vantage point. We are to trust God's justice and God's judgment in all of that. So in verse 19, we see the end of the greedy and we discover that greed is the motivator. We saw it a little bit in the sketch where he was, the sinners were calling out to the son and inviting him to share in the treasure and the plunder that they were going to get from their violent ways. Verse 19 broadens it out and says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. So we need to talk a little bit about greed here. What is greed? One writer has drawn together what Scripture says about greed and offered this definition. Greedy people are those with a strong desire to acquire and keep for themselves more and more money and possessions because they love, trust, and obey wealth rather than God. I think another writer helps us think through this well when he writes, Greed can be defined as desire that knows no bounds, desire so strong that it does not care what is done to satisfy it or what harm is done to others. Desires are not bad, but they become greedy desires when loved ones are given second place and relationships suffer, family and friends, churches and communities. Greed. Greedy for unjust gain. It's a phrase that appears in the Old Testament many times. 
the father wants, to, wants his son to know that that way leads to death. It takes away the life of its possessors. So we need to think about how to avoid greed. How do we get past that? What further instruction can we find? And so as we conclude this morning, I want to talk about remedies for greed. You'll see three remedies for greed on the screen, and you can fill those in on your notes, but I'm only going to talk about the last one for the sake of time. The first two that we're going to bypass are flight. The scriptures instruct us to run away from greed and contentment. A remedy for greed is being content with what you have. But I want to talk about the final remedy for greed at length here. Perhaps it's the biggest remedy for greed that we can pursue, generosity. Generosity. Generosity overcomes greed. Greed is often visible where there's a refusal to share. Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he is talking about the collection of money that he is gathering together from different churches. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been experiencing a famine and the Christians in Jerusalem, mostly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, are suffering because of the famine. And so he's called on Gentile churches in particular to gather money together, to put money aside so that he can take up a big collection and then carry it to Jerusalem so that they can have some money to then go buy some food and to be able to supply some resources for them. And so in 2 Corinthians 9, he's building out, motivating them to do this. So Paul is expecting that they will have stored some away at the church in Corinth so he can pick it up on his way to Jerusalem. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 9, Paul's seeking to motivate them to give of their resources, to share their money. And the basic point is to say that it's God's grace. It's God's grace that guarantees your giving. It's God's grace that guarantees your giving. In other words, God's generosity is to shape our generosity. Consider verses 6 and 7. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul utilizes a farming analogy. How would an ancient farmer work, you know, before the onset of mechanized equipment like tractors and things of that sort? Essentially, he's got to plant the seeds manually, right? And so the farmer is going to take a satchel over his shoulder. He's got a pouch right here on his side full of seed. So he's going to have a furrow dug in the ground. He's going to walk out there manually. He's going to dig his hand into the bag, take a big full hand of seed. And as he walks along, he's going to do this number. Whee! And he's going to keep walking and keep reaching in and just scattering it out, scattering it out all along the way. Some of that is going to go right in the furrow where it belongs. Some of it's going to go out to the side. Some of it's going to go over there. Some of it's going to go out there. Some of it's going to go out there. That's a picture of what Paul describes as sowing bountifully. So what's the opposite? Sowing sparingly. What does that look like? Well, you've got the same farmer with the same bag of seeds, but instead of grabbing a handful, he grabs a single seed, walks up to his furrow, bends down and says, I'm going to plant this seed right here. And then he walks on a little further, pulls out one seed, says, I'm going to plant that one right there. 
and on and on he goes, one seed at a time. Now, why would he do that? <laughs> why would a, a farmer do that? Well, truly, no one would. Paul's painting a ridiculous picture, and that's the point. He's making him see that sowing sparingly like that is silly. Nobody would do that. That's a bad idea. Well, when the rains come, it's likely that the farmer who sowed one seed at a time, it's likely that all of his seeds are probably going to sprout. But the other farmer, the one who sowed bountifully, a lot more of his seeds are going to sprout. A lot more. The harvest is going to be much larger for the one who sows bountifully. So what exactly is the one who would sow sparingly in the illustration thinking? Well, he might be thinking, you know, this seed, I bought that. I paid for that. It's mine. I I really value this seed for me. And it's so valuable that I don't want to part with it. You know, it's, it's mine. I paid for it. I bought it. It's my own. It's my precious. Sorry, Lord of the Rings references. Isn't Gollum's problem greed in large part in the story, if you know it? Paul's illustration here is very much along those lines. I don't want to part from this seed. I don't want to separate from it. I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to put it out there. It might get destroyed. It might get lost. It's so valuable to me. And Paul is saying we can be like that with our money and our resources. He's saying that we can say my income, the things that I've earned and acquired over the years, it's for me. I don't want to part with it. Even when I see needs out there. I need my stuff. It's mine. I just want to hold on to it for myself. Paul's saying, don't do that. This is a picture of greed, sowing sparingly. Paul says instead, we must sow bountifully, open-handedly, fling wide your resources so that the needs that are out in front of you get met. But the phrase that he actually uses here is much more beautiful. And much more poignant when you know what the Greek is. Bountifully translates a phrase in Greek that I think is important for us to see clearly. It's literally one who sows based on blessings. Based on blessings. And so the idea is God has blessed me with this seed. It's not mine. It's a blessing that has been given to me to pass on for others. I sow fling out my resources to share with others based on the reality that God has given it to me freely. And notice the corollary, the promise that's on the other side is that we will reap bountifully. We will reap based on blessings. It's the same exact phrase. You see, there's no mathematical calculus that goes on here where you've got this equivalence on both sides. You can't put God's grace into a mathematical equation. If you give so much, God's going to give you so much. God decides the currency. God decides the exchange rate. God decides the nature of the harvest He provides for us. It's based on His blessings. He's totally free in giving what He wants, where He wants, when He wants, to whom He wants, and in what proportion He wants. And if we think like that, we should be free with our resources as well, based on what God has done for us, based on the ways that God has blessed us. 
Paul presses home this farming analogy in verse 7 to every individual. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Now notice that. Paul's concern for these Corinthian Christians is that they made a verbal commitment to give. You see that earlier in 2 Corinthians 8. They made a verbal commitment. Many of the individual members of the Corinthian church said, I'd like to set aside some money to give for that collection for the Jerusalem church. They decided in their heart, and then they made a verbal commitment and said, I'm going to give. We never know how much. We don't know the amount, and it's not important. They made a verbal commitment, and more importantly, they made a heart commitment. They made a heart commitment to give. And Paul's saying, you better follow through. You see, as a person has decided in his heart... Who sees that? Nobody's going to know. Your neighbor doesn't know how much or whether you've committed to give in, that, in, in your heart, whether you've decided in your heart to give. So you might think, well, nobody's going to know. You know, it's not going to matter. The people, the people who need the money or need the help, they don't know that I thought, oh, I'd like to give to that. And then I backed out. They never know, so what harm is it? Paul brings up this point to remind us of something that he tells us back in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. See, God knows what you have decided in your heart. And he will hold you accountable for what you've decided in your heart. If you don't follow through with those things, it's not that nobody doesn't benefit. That's true. Nobody, the people won't benefit if you don't follow through. But the fact that you committed in your heart and then you backed out, God will hold you accountable for that. So Paul goes on and gives two negative pictures. He, how does he not want you to give? Well, he says two things. Not reluctantly, as the ESV says, or under compulsion. The phrase not reluctantly is literally not out of grief. And so what he's saying is don't give because you feel bad. I've given because I've felt bad gotten to the end of the year and said, you know, I didn't really give much this year. And a need came up and I said, you know, I think I'll give to that because I kind of feel like I haven't really given enough this year. I kind of feel guilty. And Paul says, no, don't do that. That's not a good motive for giving. And I'll be held accountable for that motive. But he's saying instead, don't give when you feel guilty. Guilt is not a proper motivation for giving. On the other hand, neither is compulsion. That is, don't give because someone is manipulating you or trying to force you to give. And I'm sure all of you have either heard on television, heard on the radio, or been in someone's presence who's trying to manipulate you, to cajole you into giving, trying to twist your arm. And Paul is saying, don't give in to that. Not only is the person who does the manipulating guilty and going to be held accountable for his manipulating behavior, if you give in to that, you're going to be held accountable for succumbing, for not having the discernment to resist and to instead give out of your own free decision, out of your own free choice. And finally, what he expresses in the last phrase of this verse, we need to look at, God loves a cheerful giver. Now that raises the question, what about when we don't give like that? What about when we're not a cheerful giver? I've given out of wrong motives. Did God not love me when I did that? You've got to see what Paul's doing here. 
Of course, God loves us even when our motives are broken and stupid, because they often are. God loves us still. God loves the reluctant giver. God loves the manipulated giver. God loves the guilty giver. God loves the one who gives under compulsion. God loves us. That's not the point. The point is, Paul's trying to motivate us to give positively and properly. So he's reminding us that God does love a cheerful giver. So he's saying, look, this is the kind of giving that God loves. So wouldn't you want to do it? God loves a cheerful giver. So the Corinthians and us should be saying, well, if God loves that kind of giver, then by golly, I want to give like that. He's motivating us properly. He's not twisting our arms here. He's not trying to manipulate our feelings and make us feel bad. He's saying God loves a cheerful giver. And if God loves a cheerful giver, then I want to be a cheerful giver. What's a cheerful giver? Cheerful in English is, is a lame word for this. It's just too weak. The Greek word is much stronger. We get two English words from this Greek word, and I love both of them in this context. The Greek word is hilaros. One of the English words we get from that is hilarious. So I ask you, when's the last time you gave away your money and you just broke out into laughter because of it? It was just hilarious that I got to give my money away. I'm not sure if I've ever felt that way. But I think we should. We should break into laughter when God gives us an opportunity to give our money away. You see, it's hilarious that God would use our resources, the resources that He's given to us, to help others. The other English word that we get from hilaros is exhilarated. Exhilarated. It's thrilling, exhilarating to give our money away. And again, (laughs) have you ever taken your wallet out and given your money away and had this spine-tingling feeling run up your back and you felt like, gosh, this is better than riding a roller coaster? Because it is. And in line with what we saw last week in relation to the fear of the Lord, this is the kind of generosity that's an expression of being thrilled with God, thrilled with the Lord, to have the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. But why does God love a cheerful giver? Paul doesn't tell us that part. Why does God love a cheerful giver? Well, isn't it because God is a cheerful giver? He breaks out into laughter. When he gives, it's hilarious for God to give to us. It thrills God to give to us. It was hilarious to God. It was exciting for God to give his own son to die and pay for our sin. Yes, also grievous at the same time. But it was hilarious. God gave his son cheerfully. He was excited to do it. Don't think he was begrudging that he had to give his son to... He had to. He had to to take care of us poor, little, miserable sinners. He was thrilled. It was hilarious for God to do that, and so it ought to be for us when we want to give money to people, resources or whatever else. So verse 7 here charges us to give like an exhilarated farmer. Think back to the sowing image again. Why is the farmer sowing so broadly? Why is he sowing so open-handedly? Because he's looking forward to the harvest. 
He's looking ahead. He sows freely because he's excited. He, God is really going to make these little bitty things turn into food for me and my family. God is really going to bring a harvest from this. And so he's thrilled to go out there and do the hard work of sowing in a field. And so we should give like an exhilarated farmer. Take a look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. We could summarize this. God's all grace provides all sufficiency for our all giving all the time. It's hard to be more emphatic than this verse about God's grace and what it does in our lives. God is able, it says. God is powerful. This is a power word. God is powerful to make all grace abound to you. Look, God doesn't scatter His grace a little over there and a little over there. God doesn't give you a little bit of grace and you a little bit of grace and you a little bit of grace and you a little bit of grace. He doesn't do it that way. He gives all grace to you and all grace to you and all grace to you. All grace to each one of us. And He never empties. He never depletes. His power never reduces. He gives all grace to us. Not just a little bit. He's not stingy. He makes all grace abound to you. And what's the result? What happens when God makes all grace abound to you? So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. All sufficiency. All sufficiency. Not just kind of sufficient, not just a little bit adequate, not just barely competent, but completely sufficient. You don't make yourself adequate. You don't make yourself sufficient for anything that God calls you to do. God makes you all sufficient. God makes you completely adequate for whatever He calls you to do. It's easy for us to look at our neighbor, to look at other Christians and say, look at all that God has given to them. And then we look at our own lack and we say, God must not be blessing me or God must not care about my needs. Why doesn't God help me like he helps them? And we fall into the comparison trap and we begin looking at other Christians with envy and greed. And God wants you to trust him that he is providing you with all sufficiency, even when it looks like your bank account's empty, even when it looks like your body won't do any more for you, even when you don't have the time that you'd like to have or the resources you think you, could, you think you should have, God is at work in your life with His grace to provide all that you need in all things, in all circumstances, at all times. Do you believe that? Can you believe that? Can you believe that He really is doing this right now in this moment for you? Is it unbelievable to believe that God is at work for your good every moment of every day, for all of your life, to provide all that you need all the time? Can you believe that? Because that's what this text teaches. You see, for the Christian, there is no more of God bringing punishment into your life. There's no more of God's wrath being poured out in your life. No more. Not one drop. All that God does in your life is good. Every circumstance, all the time, every day of all your life, even through the bad stuff, He's working His grace for you. He's working His power 
for you. And so when you read about grace in the Bible, when you talk about grace in your life, you need to remember both sides. Grace is not just that He's looking at you with a smile. That's true. He is. But grace is that He's busy in your life. He's doing stuff. Good stuff. All good stuff. But you also need to remember the other side. You only deserve God's wrath. Only. You haven't done anything that causes God to be gracious to you. God is gracious because God is gracious. Period. So this is the way the Christian life works. God's power is at work to bring good to you and through you all the time. The call is for us to believe that that's true. To believe that He's doing those things even when we evaluate our lives and see a lot of negative, a lot of pain, a lot of bad, a lot of suffering. God is still at work. He hasn't taken his hand off any of his children, and he never will. The garland of grace that comes from the discipline of the Lord and the teaching of the Lord shapes the lives of his children so that we run away from greed and we generously share our resources with those in need. Jesus wore the garland of grace himself. Consider 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. No one could ever accuse Jesus of being greedy. And though He faced every temptation, every enticement to join in with sinners, He never consented. Oh yes, He ate with sinners. He dwelt among sinners, but only so that He might carry our sin in His own body so that sinners might join Him in His righteousness. Resist the call of sinners, whatever form it takes. Would you pray with me? Father, the only appropriate response to Your grace ultimately is gratitude. And so we say thank You. And we pray that as we've received grace upon grace from You through Your Son, that we would live lives of gratitude that we would say thank you often and out loud so that all people may know where the good, the true good comes in our lives. It comes from you and from you alone. Help us to make that known. And help us to understand that it doesn't come to us apart from Jesus himself. Every ounce of grace that we receive for all of eternity comes because Jesus died for us. And so we pray that we would grow in our gratitude and that we would fight the tendency toward greed and the materialism that seeks to choke us out in this world. We thank you for the power of your Spirit who seeks to apply this very grace to keep us from going down that road. Thank you for the instruction of your Word and the ways that it keeps us on the right path. Help us to take the next step by faith, trusting in your grace, depending on you for every step of the way, knowing that the end of the road is life, eternal life, eternal joy, eternal satisfaction. And so we thank you that that is our destiny. Help us to trust you for it even today. In Jesus' name, amen.